First century Jews had no idea what to do with Jesus. Just couldn't figure it out. Ever since the time of Isaiah, the prophets had been prophesying that a coming Messiah, a coming king was coming. This king would deliver them. This king would lead them. This king would rule them. This king would bring them freedom. And, and for hundreds of years, every true Jewish man, woman, boy, and girl, they were longing, expecting, anticipating the coming of this anointed one, the Messiah. I, I dare say the first century Jews were looking more toward the coming of the Messiah than contemporary Christians are looking to his second coming. It was never a time that they did not gather to worship that these prophecies, these themes of a coming Redeemer didn't come up. They were longing, they were looking, they were anticipating, and yet they missed him. John the Baptist, the forerunner that God sent, was the first to, to say, you better repent because the kingdom of God, this promise is about to be fulfilled. It was John that would look at Jesus and say, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus just didn't fit the bill. Jesus didn't act like a king. Jesus wasn't raising up an army to deliver them from Roman oppression. Jesus just wasn't doing those kingly things. I mean, army, he's calling fishermen. I mean, ordinary people. This doesn't look like a king. This, this isn't what we thought our coming Messiah would do. But they didn't know what to do with him because Jesus could do stuff that nobody else could do. I mean, Jesus could take a man that had been blind from birth and give that man sight. Who can do that? Jesus was healing people of all kinds of illnesses and diseases. Uh, who can do that? Jesus could take hardly nothing and feed thousands of people with it. I mean, they actually saw him do things that were amazing and astonishing. Some even saw him give life to people that had died. You remember the story of, of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that came to Jesus and said, Look, now Nicodemus is an educated an, an articulate kind of guy who, who knew the Old Testament. And he says to Jesus, we know you're from God. No doubt about it, you're from God. Because you couldn't do the kind of stuff you're doing. Unless so, so the Jews, they really didn't know what to do with Jesus. Uh, he, he, he didn't fit what they had in mind about a coming king. But he certainly could do some things that only someone from God could do. So you, we, we, we see them on, on what we know as Palm Sunday. We see them finally saying, here he is. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you're familiar with this New Testament story, uh, the gospel writers say on that day, the, the Sunday before Jesus was crucified, he comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there's this crowd, mass of people. 
that's going before him. I mean, it's like they, they can't get out of the way. And, and all the way, they're just shouting and lifting their voices. Oh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People are taking their coats off and putting it down as if they're rolling out the red carpet. Those who didn't have coats, cutting palm branches. That's where we get Palm Sunday. And just almost like rolling out the red carpet. Here comes our king. I mean, can, can you imagine Jesus coming in these people are just going wild it's just it's just a it's a parade it's just it's celebration you talk about something that blow your mind four days later not only have they rejected him but they are demanding his death four days i mean can can you imagine could i have been one of those People that take my coat off? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he. He's here. And four days later say, kill him. Put him to death. How does this happen? Does anybody here remember what happened between Jesus coming in to Jerusalem? They call him for his crucifixion. The synoptic gospel writers tell us of a second time that Jesus went into the temple the next day and he began to cleanse it. He said, you've made this place into a den of thieves and, and robbers. Jesus unleashes once again his fury. And the problem is he's not unleashing this fury on the Romans. He's unleashing it on his own people, the Jews, and what he's dealing with is their sin. And it rubs them the wrong way because in reality, what the Jews of the first century wanted was the same thing that many people still want today. They want someone to deliver them from their circumstances. Jesus did not come to deliver people from their circumstances. Jesus came to save people from their sin. And so what Jesus did, he doesn't say, let me help you with your circumstances. Jesus said, let me save you from your sin. And before I can do that, you've got to get real about the fact that you are a sinner. Uh, listen, I, I, I want just a personal word to anybody that's here this morning. And you might be here and you haven't been in church in a long time. Uh, and, and, and you're here because someone has told you in the midst of your circumstances is your life is just kind of spiraling out of control and you've tried this and you've tried that and you've tried this and somebody loves you and cares for you and said, hey, you need to turn your life around. You, you, you need to get back in church. That is not what you need. You need a Savior. Needs saving. That is what we need. So what I want to speak to you about this morning is Christ our Savior. Even though the Jews miss this because they wanted a deliverer from circumstances instead of a Savior from sin, even though they missed it, they shouldn't have missed it. It's, it's in the Old Testament. There's no place in the Old Testament that's any clearer that this prophecy of a coming Savior than Isaiah 52 and 53. I want to read this. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And 15 of Isaiah 52, and I'm going to read the whole chapter of 53, and I know it's lengthy. 
But I want you to let the, the Word of God speak to you. I, I, I want you to see this. I've already prayed that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes, open our eyes. Let us see the truths that are here. This is packed full of truths. We can't touch them all. We're just going to look at several. But we begin by reading this truth of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 13 is where this prophecy actually begins. Um, and it goes through chapter 53. So I'll read the prophecy in its entirety. God is speaking and says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet... He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear 
their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The Jews were looking for someone to deliver them from their circumstances. I've already said that you might be here looking for some way out of your own circumstances. But the gospel that we so often speak of and the gospel that we embrace and the gospel that binds us together and the gospel that we proclaim is not a message about being delivered out of circumstances. It's a message about being saved from our sins. And if you don't know this, it's worth knowing. Christianity is the only world religion, the only one that has a Savior. All other world religions, they'll have a God, they'll have prophets, they'll have holy writings and holy scriptures, they have laws and rules and regulations and systems, but Christianity is unique because it stands alone in all world religions as being the only religion that has a Savior. Why? Because we understand that's what we need. And so I want to speak to you before we go to this time of communion, before you partake of, of what we call the Lord's Supper, I want to speak to you from this passage about our great Savior and just show you several things that I want you to know before you partake of that, which reminds us of what has been done for us. The first thing I want you to see, several things in this passage, many, but just several I want us to focus on. The first is... Our glorious Savior was first a servant. He was a servant. Chapter 52, verse number 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. Jesus was a servant. And this prophecy is about one who would come and would be a servant. Sometimes in this book of Isaiah, the servant is the nation of Israel. God says to the nation sometimes, Israel, you're my servant. Sometimes he said to Isaiah, the prophet, the writer of this book, Isaiah, you were my servant. But here in 52.13, the servant is not Israel. The servant isn't Isaiah. The servant is the coming Savior. The servant is the Messiah. There's a story in the, in the book of Acts where Philip is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and gets out into the wilderness and on this wilderness road, there is a chariot. On the back of the chariot, there's an Ethiopian man, and he's reading from a scroll. Guess where he's reading from? Isaiah. What part? Chapter 52 and 53, what we've just read. Philip runs up to him and asks the man, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, how can I understand unless somebody explains this to me? So the, the Ethiopian says to Philip, tell me, is this writer talking about himself or someone else? And Luke tells us in, in the book of Acts that Philip took the book and beginning with that passage, began to teach him about Jesus. This is a passage of scripture about Jesus. Jesus is the servant. He's a suffering servant. 
I'm not sure the first century Jews understood that their coming king would, would have to suffer. Before there is this glory and, and, and there's this victory, if you would, they should have understood that he would have to suffer. Look at verse 14 of chapter 52. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance, just the appearance of this servant was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Verse 3 of 53, he was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Listen, I honestly believe that if you and I could literally stand at the foot of the cross and, and look at Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, and, and see him as he physically appeared, we would find it hard to believe that that actually was a man. Beaten, flogged, the, the, the toil, certainly we would hide our face. Scripture says it would be, it would be so, so horrid that we would, we would turn our face. Jesus was our Savior, a, a servant. He's a suffering servant. But here's the real thing I want you to hear before we move on. Jesus was a servant, but he was a servant of God. He was a servant of God and not a servant of us. That's what I want you to hear. Jesus came to be a servant of the Father, not to be your servant. You need to hear this, because there are millions of people today who somehow still look at Jesus as if he's their genie in a bottle. God says, verse number 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. You need to understand that from all eternity, from the very beginning, there was an eternal plan to bring salvation. It was a plan between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that plan was to bring salvation. You need to understand that that plan wasn't a plan that they came up with after sin entered into the world. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit didn't say, what are we going to do now? The cross is not an afterthought. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain when? Before the foundations of the world. Satan might have thought when Adam and Eve sinned, Satan might have thought, oh boy, have I messed up their plan. What Satan didn't know is he had set up their plan. It's an eternal plan. God came, the Father came up with it. Jesus, the Son, was going to pull it off. He was going to perform it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who appropriates it and makes it real for those of us that are in Christ. This has been the eternal plan. Jesus said himself, Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus was obedient. Obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Who was Jesus being obedient to? He was being obedient to the Father. Jesus was the servant of God. Now here's what I want you to hear. Here's what, this is the truth I want you to get. There, there is this, have you heard this song it, it, it was popular not all that long ago, and, and, and maybe it's your favorite song. I like the song. There's a truth in it. The song that says, 
when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. There is a truth there, but there's a greater truth that you need to also know. When he was on the cross, first and foremost, his heavenly father was on his mind. He came to be this suffering servant who said to his father, we have had a plan from the beginning and we are going to pull it off. Do I become a recipient of that? You better believe it. Does it show me the love that the father and the son and the Holy Spirit has for me? You better believe it. But first and foremost, I want you to hear your pastor say that Jesus came to this earth to serve the father, not us, because we get that so mixed up we want to think everything that happens happens because of us and before you know it we go around making everything just about us especially our faith even what Jesus did to where he becomes like that spare tire in the trunk and we get a flat tire and we get into bad circumstances oh dear Jesus please get me out of it can, can I just say this again? Jesus did not come to get you out of your bad circumstances. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And he came in obedience to the Father, a suffering servant being obedient to an eternal plan that they had from the beginning and will carry it out for all eternity. That's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus, the Savior, was a servant of God. Second thing I want you to see, tons of stuff in here, but the second thing I want you to see, this servant of God became our substitute. The servant became a substitute. What is a substitute? A substitute is someone who takes someone else's place. How would Jesus take someone else's place? By going to the cross and dying and paying the penalty that sinners owed. He would become a substitute. Back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Well, why would God afflict him? Why would God smite his servant? Why would God smite his servant? Surely wasn't because the servant had done anything wrong. It was because the servant has now become a substitute. And who's he being a substitute for? For those he came to save. Look at verse number 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we're healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. But the Lord, that's God there. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse number 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, and here we see this again, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their 
iniquities. The very last part of verse 12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. The servant of God became my substitute. It's hard to even express to you what that means to me. I've, I've, I've met very few people who claim Christianity or the Christian faith. I've met very few people who, who wouldn't say that they believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins. Most of you use that language. I've met tons of people who live lives and have attitudes and have a faith and says they believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay their penalty or their debt for their sins, but in their minds, they only have a debt of about $3.14. You don't know me. The one who does know me is the one who has made me. The one who knows, my, my wife doesn't know me. My kids don't know me. I think I know myself, but I don't know myself as well as the one who made me. No, I certainly don't know myself as much as my substitute knows because my substitute, the servant of God, Jesus, the Messiah, who came to save me, knew me well enough to take every sin I would ever commit in my life and take it upon himself and take my place and stand in and be smitten by God so that I wouldn't be. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a debt of $3.14. The Bible says that I'm an enemy of God. You rebel against your creator, that makes you an enemy of God. So there I am. And God is going to judge me being his enemy. You don't know how many things in my life I've put before God. How many things I have valued more than I have valued him. How many things I've pursued and acquired and thought I couldn't live without and put God somewhere further down on the list. You better believe I'm an idolater. I'm a thief. In fact, if you just want to run through the, if you just want to run through the, the commandments. I'm a rebel. I'm a liar. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I've coveted, I mean, disobedient. The way Jesus interprets the law, but you know what? Jesus doesn't have to interpret the law. I mean, I can just look at my heart and I know I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it talks about all of us like sheep, we've turned away and done, I'm at the head of the pack. And yet this is what is so glorious about my Savior. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, that God the Father made him, that is his servant, his son Jesus, who knew no sin, To be sin for us. And every sin I have ever committed or shall commit 
has been paid for. Lock, stock, and barrel. My punishment no longer goes to me. Why? It went to my substitute. And let me tell you something. God is not going to punish my substitute and then turn around and punish me. He bore them all. My arrogance, my self-centeredness, my unbelief, Jesus said, I will bear his iniquities. And this is what the gospel is all about. Jesus did not die the death of a martyr. A martyr is someone who, who has some great causes and takes a stand and does what's right. And people don't like it because they're going against culture and they're going to put you to death because you don't agree with them. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus was a substitute. People argue sometimes. I've heard this argument. Who really killed Jesus? Was it the Jews or was it the Romans? Jesus answers that question when he says, no one takes my life from me. I Lay it down. Why? Because I'm serving my Father. We've had a plan. The plan was for me to come and be a substitute for sinners. That means he took my place. And you might say, well, Pastor, do you, think, do you think Jesus took my place? Somebody asked me that not long ago. Did Jesus take my place? Did Jesus die on the cross for my sins? Can, if, you, if you're wondering that, can I ask you a question? Do you need a Savior? Do you need a Savior? I'm not talking about somebody to pay a debt of $3.14. Do you need a Savior? Has there been a time that you've looked and you said, Woe is me! I am just undone! My righteousness on my best day is like filthy rags. You don't have to use those words, but I'm going to tell you something. If you've ever felt it, you know what I'm talking about. Do you need a Savior? Do you believe that God sent Jesus to be the Savior? Do you believe he went to that cross to forgive sinners? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Where are you willing to put your faith and trust in him instead of your own self-centered ways? Do you realize you cannot save yourself? If you say, yeah, that's the, yeah, 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 then I can tell you without any reservations, atonement has been made for your sins by the atoning work of Jesus Christ as a substitute. This is salvation. There, there's just so much, so much here, so much more here. I'll just point to one more thing. This servant of God who is the substitute for sinners is also, if you look at the very last part of chapter 53, he is the one who sustains and secures our salvation. It says, and he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The word interceded is what I want to focus on. I'm, I'm learning more and more and more about the saving work of Christ. I, I really am. And, and I'm, I'm learning that the, the, the saving work of Christ certainly has everything to do with the cross, but it also has to do with our risen Savior living to intercede for us, to pray for us. That's what intercession means. He, he, he's our defense attorney. 
And Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus died, yea, rather was resurrected and, and is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Have you ever heard anybody say that Jesus is praying for you? Let, let me quickly read Hebrews chapter 7. You might want to jot down this reference. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save forever. This is a word for those that have doubted their salvation. Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Clearly, Scripture teaches that even now, Christ is making intercession for those that he died for. He lives to make intercession for those that he died for. And he's not just praying that God would get you out of your circumstances. I'm going to say it again. He's praying that God will keep you secure in your salvation. And by the way, just learn this theologically. Jesus never asked the Father for anything that's not already the Father's will. It's not like the son goes to the father and says, please, 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 please. And the father says, I don't know. Please, please, please. Well, I really don't want to, but since you're begging me, it doesn't work that way. I guarantee you everything that Jesus the son prays for is part of the father's will already. Everything. And what does he pray for? He intercedes for our salvation. He is forever pleading our case. Why? Because Satan's a great accuser. There's some of you here this morning, and Satan has accused you to yourself. Satan accuses me to myself. Oh, Pastor Lefko, Mr. Christian, really? Is that the way you should be acting? Is that how Christians act? You're not saved. You're not saved. And yet I can say with full assurance... God sent his servant, his son, Jesus Christ, to be my substitute. My sins have been atoned for. Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected. He ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for me. Not asking God to get me out of my bad circumstances, but saying, Father, I don't care what anybody says about him. He's ours. And that's salvation. That, that, that's what communion is about. It, 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 this is, it, you talk, hallelujah, what a Savior. If you need a Savior, there is one. His name's Jesus. He's the only one. But he's only a Savior to those who, who can see and those who, who believe and those who, who begin by saying, woe is me. Let me tell you what. When the Holy Spirit of God opens your eyes to this truth, you'll see two things clear than you've ever seen them before. First of all, you'll see how wretched you are. And then the second thing you'll see is how glorious Jesus is. Before we now come to your table, Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for being a humble servant of God, a sufficient sacrifice and substitute for us, and one who eternally secures us and sustains us by your intercessory work. May you hear from us 
that which needs to be heard from people that so much has been done for. In your name, amen.